Thank you for joining Geezers of Gear, episode number 189. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stratum Productions. Bringing clarity and order to the chaotic event industry, Stratum is your single-source pro-AVL rental and design resource, proudly servicing shows and special events throughout North America. Founded in the heartland, the company's Midwestern values, relentless pursuit of perfection, and relationship-driven customer focus help separate them from the rest. From the first downbeat to the final curtain call, the Stratum Pro team of industry titans are committed to providing the best gear and technical support available to help you create immersive events that will leave crews thankful and crowds speechless. To learn more about this great company, please visit stratumpro.com. Also, please visit www.coffeecult.com, and that's coffee with a K and cult with a K, coffeecult.com, and search for Geezer's Grind. It's a killer new blend that I drink every day. It's not too strong, and it will definitely get you going in the morning. All proceeds on this blend go to Roby Backstage to support people in our industry with medical or other challenges. So please visit Coffee Cult with K's, coffeecult.com, and find Geezer's Grind and uh, place an order, order two because shipping's free, over $50. And uh, you will not be disappointed by the coffee and you will be supporting a great cause, robybackstage.com. Sorry, not robybackstage.com, just robybackstage. Thank you very much. Well, hello again, and thank you for coming back here for episode number 189. Uh, 188, just yesterday, was Eric Todd from BML, uh, sorry, from Blackbird BML or BML Blackbird. I like Eric a lot. I've known him for the better part of 30 years and just a really good guy. Uh, Was a fun chat. He's so knowledgeable and I like that Eric has taken such a different approach to most companies out there. Um, And I feel like his Generico brand, his Generico business is going to be a $100 million company one day. So watch out for that. And thank you to Eric. And if you haven't heard it yet, definitely take a listen. It's a good one. Uh, And I think you'll probably like it. And uh, so it's funny that... uh, Today, we have another New Jersey guy. It must be a New Jersey theme with Eric Todd yesterday. And now today, we have a gentleman named Brian Dowd, who most of you probably know if you uh, were born and brought up in this industry in the last 40 years in in, uh, America. You probably know Brian. Uh, He's also from New Jersey. And so please welcome the undisputed king of the grill, Brian Dowd. Well, hello there, Mr. Dowd. How are you today? I'm fantastic, Marcel. How are you? I'm pretty okay, too, you know. It's uh, 84 degrees today, I think. It's <laughs> warm and nice here in sunny Florida. How about I you? Woke up to, I woke up to like three and a half inches of snow. That was not forecasted at all. Yikes. You're in New Jersey, right? 
Yeah, I live in northwestern New Jersey where the bears are. I live in a, a semi-rural lake community, so we got foxes and coyotes and bears and deer. And yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So do you uh, do you hunt? Yep, I'm are an you avid, allowed to hunt there. I'm, uh, yep, I'm an avid bow hunter, and I can literally walk out into the woods without even having to get in my truck if I choose to. Oh wow! Because it's right, it's right there. It's state land. So, like, what animals are you able to hunt? Um, I'm able to hunt whitetails. I'm able to hunt turkeys, but I don't anymore because the population's gone down so bad. It's kind of not worth the time. Um, Bears were um, prohibited for quite a while, and they just reopened it this year. But it was postponed for a lawsuit. So by the time it kicked in gear, I was... I was away working. I was traveling. Yeah. So I, I missed the whole process. Have you ever bagged a bear? Um, no, no. My never dad have. used to when I was a kid. I remember eating bear meat. We'd have I've, like. I've eaten bear meat before. Yeah. But, but I've never. Uh, I don't I've really never... remember it well. Like I seem to remember it was one of the more gamey and tougher ones. It is. It's kind of stringy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember really liking that. Like we used to, you know, growing up in Western Canada, we used to have a freezer that would have elk in it and moose mm-hmm. in it and right. and sometimes bear. Um, either my dad would get it or or friends of his and, and they'd give it to him. Uh, so bear yeah, has trichinosis as well. So you have to cook it well done. And you have to like really cook bear meat. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, maybe and, that's uh, why I was like... Ven- like venison. I just want to like whisper flame to it. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't do that with bear meat. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so you must be a big Joe Rogan guy too, right? With uh, with all the games. Yeah, he's cool. Elk he's, and venison. He's a good. He's a good. He does a good job. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's obviously a big advocate of that. So you mm-hmm. know, I want to talk a little bit about you and your meat and your grilling and all that stuff because you're uh, you're like next level with that stuff, right? I'm I'm a carnivore, that's for sure. <laughs> no, but I mean with the cooking side of it, not yeah. just the eating side of it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge foodie. I'm a I'm a very very chefy type person. I've even gone as far as to build build my own um, chef knives. And uh, wow, why? Um, actually, my my daughters are like the greatest gift givers in the world, and they gave me a kit one one year for my birthday, and uh, it's it's like a Damascus steel chef knife it was a pretty awesome experience that's pretty cool um but uh yeah years years ago um well, i guess growing up my mom was irish catholic from new england which meant everything was boiled until it was gray and tasteless that's yeah. just how that's how we ate yeah. and so I, I knew from an early age there had to be a better way and uh i started cooking when i was tall you know basically tall enough to uh handle the stove yeah and uh i just kept at it my whole life and somewhere in the mid 90s um because i moved back up to jersey in 96 so it was somewhere you know 96 97 i tried to smoke a thanksgiving turkey in my gas grill and caught the grill on fire and melted the vinyl siding of the shed and all that kind of stuff so at that at that point i decided to to get real about it and start figuring it out yeah and uh Years later, I was, you know, doing the uh, competition barbecue circuit in the Mid-Atlantic in the Northeast. That's cool. And so what, what's that, that about? Like, you just 
sign up for these things and you go out and is there prizes and yeah all of the above i was a member of the uh of the you know of a big major barbecue association um you go to these competitions you pay money to to compete and your average team is like four or five dudes that all hang out together they all share in the work and they all share in the expenses and other than occasionally my girls coming along to help i was always by myself wow. so that was kind of hard financially it was hard and and it's just taxing physically because you're up all night long and if you win um, what's that look like it can be it depends on the comp it depends on the size of the comp it could be a couple of grand oh. in there's big comps out in the midwest and and like texas where there's some you know twenty thirty thousand dollar prize oh money. wow in the Northeast, you're just looking at like maybe fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, or something like that. But and, it, it's uh, almost like the plastic trophy in racing, though, right? Like you're spending I, five thousand to maybe win a thousand dollar prize or something. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And uh, we call them hard trophies because you can get ribbons and stuff like that. And then you, when you're getting a hard trophy, that's that's when you got something really cheesy and awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. And uh, but during during COVID. Um, I sold my competition rig and got out of it because years ago, thanks to uh, some very successful dudes, one named Myron Nixon, he's a super famous competitive barbecue guy. They started using things like Wagyu briskets and Berkshire pork shoulders. And once enough cooks started doing that, you were never going to place unless you were using the same stuff. And it just became very, very costly to do. I mean, my, my, Briskets were costing me like $230 a piece. Damn. Yeah. So um, it was just kind of time to move on. But yeah. the, the competition thing really upped my game. And then that led to um, a marketing advantage to the companies I was working for, starting with ACT. Um, and so I started cooking for customers right. and for customer events. And I've cooked- Legendary. Cookouts all, all over. <laughs> they were a lot of fun. Yeah. But I've cooked all over the country. I've cooked in Canada. And uh, I've had some attempts to cook in Europe, but I've never. It's just so hard to try and find all the stuff over there to yeah. do it. But uh, there is some discussion about trying to do that in Paris at some point. Well, and I heard you're being pulled out of uh, retirement, too, because I remember last time we talked about mm -hmm. this was probably at LDI or something. And you said, yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to do it yeah. anymore. It's over. They, they con four wall con me into it again. Uh -oh. And uh, one of the things, because last year when I did it, which last year I think was the 10th year, and uh, the most I had cooked for before was 450 people. And keep in mind, I have no professional catering background or anything. Right. I'm just wait, I'm winging it, but I'm winging it successfully. Well, and I guess and you're not cooking hot dogs and hamburgers either, are you? No, I'm cooking briskets, pulled pork, ribs, and chicken. Wow. And, they pay the food uh, costs, I hope. Yeah, in in all of the events that I did, usually it was it was ACT or GLP that was paying for everything because it was a you know it was a customer appreciation oh, yeah, marketing event. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when it came to the four wall thing, they've always because it's not, um, it's their event. Yeah, it's it, not it's, an a, ACT it's event. their vendor. Yeah, so they they've always paid for that, and that started out um, the first year they ever did it. It was like a couple of celery trays from Costco. 
And then they started cooking burgers and dogs. And Jimmy Cannon, the late Jimmy Cannon, came to me one day and said, can, can you come sort this out and do this right? Yeah. And I look back at some pictures from back then, and it's mind-blowing what a ragtag pile of crap that I had and, and the guys helping it. me. And then it just grew and grew. And uh, eventually ACT bought me um, a significant offset cooker. That's It's a company called Meadow Creek that's made um, right outside of Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Um, so... And yeah, and it just it grew and and grew out from there, and I even ran into um, a time a, a lighting crew chief out of Ireland, and uh, we were up at at Antoine's house up at in Solitech up in Montreal, mm-hmm. and everybody's speaking French, and there's me and this Irish dude, <laughs> and so we're talking, and somehow cooking came up, and he went, "You're the barbecue guy." <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. And he doesn't even live in the States. That's so That hilarious. was pretty funny. So, so th- last year I had to cook for 700 people. Oh, my and, God. And that, that almost killed me. I mean, that was really, really hard. And uh, my main sort of right-hand guy, uh, Sean Sack, he left the industry uh, during COVID and didn't really have any interest in coming back. So... Um, You're by not only was again. the yeah, I was by myself. Oh, I, I, no. I have help from from other people, <clears throat> but not like that kind of help. It yeah. wasn't knowledgeable help, not even though it's well meaning. Yeah, some schmuck from the warehouse. So this year they're they're they've got me two cookers, which will help a lot. These are two hundred fifty gallon offset cookers, and that having a second one will help me in, enormously. Yeah, a little little bit. And there's no um, stress w- that you're gonna screw the whole thing up and like destroy three thousand, five thousand dollars worth of brisket or something. Sure, there's stress. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I worry it's, about that when I got more than two lobster tails. You know, I'm like, oh Jesus, what's gonna happen here? You know, I I'm the same way, and I I always get all tripped out about stuff, and it always works out. Yeah, it, it just it just always does. That's amazing. I mean, I would absolutely love to just sit there and watch one time when you when you're going through that stuff because, you know, I'm your basic dad barbecue guy, mm-hmm. right? Like, I make a decent steak because I had a um, one of my neighbors probably 20 years ago was a chef at the Breakers Steakhouse oh. down here, so way overpriced steaks, like two hundred dollar right. steaks and stuff, right? And, I used to do um, corporate gigs at Breakers years ago. <laughs> yeah, but the Breakers Steakhouse has <laughs> it's legendary. Like they have one of, I think, two master sommeliers in in the area, and you know, like just it's it's legendary. But he was he was the chef there, and so he showed me how to make steak. And so you know, people always go, "Oh my God, that's one of the best steaks I've ever had." You know, every time I make it. So that's sort of my go-to, but other than that, mm-hmm. I don't really have much, you know, like I don't, I don't, uh, I'm, people don't invite me over to their house to cook for them or like you, you know, or especially to their shop. Uh, I, I would screw up if I had to cook 700 burgers, I'd screw up 400 of them. Probably, uh, people would be eating hockey pucks. It, it was a challenge that particular, um, the 700 person cook, just to put it in perspective, it was. And I'm doing this from memory, but I think it's right. I cooked 26 pork shoulders, 18 briskets, 60 racks of ribs, and 200 pounds of chicken thighs. Good God. 
That's and, a lot uh, of food. Brian Luftig, who works at Four Wall, um, he's now the the de facto chicken cooker. He's got it down, and he he cooked all the chicken, so he was a, an incredible help. And and he's been he's been there with me since the beginning of the Four Wall stuff. I gotta say, the whole carnivore thing must be must be good because you look very thin. Like I don't know if you've I, lost a bunch of weight or something. But I'm looking at you. On, we're recording this on Zoom, and I'm looking at you, and you look thin as hell. So it all started with that cook, and and this had nothing to do with the cook. The cook just the stress of it brought it out in me. Yeah. But I ended up um, I ended up in a pretty bad way. You know, while I was in that cook, I was in enormous pain internally. I had no idea what was going on, and uh, so after. That was over and, you know, I'm home, got sorted. I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. So I had, it's a, it's a whole combination of things, all basically brought on by, um, a lifelong of, of too much drinking and, um, eating the wrong kinds of food. Being naughty as my girlfriend would say. (laughs) So I, uh, yeah, it was, I cut out all beer, which I, drank copious amounts of every single day for 30 years. Um, I cut out sugar and I went on a keto diet and I did that hardcore the whole summer. So this was like early July 7th, I think was the day I was at the doctor. And um, by the fall, um, I'd lost a lot of weight and inflammation was gone. Joints didn't hurt anymore. And uh, I went back for my six month blood work and my liver markers had gone from 56 down to 23. I was no longer pre-diabetic because my goal was to do this without medication. I, I was wow. not going to go on diabetes meds. I just didn't want to do it. And uh, I've lost 35 pounds. I walk several miles a day, work out with kettlebells. Good and for you, uh, man. I'm not doing 100% keto now, but I'm still eating a really low-carb diet. You know what? You look 20 years younger. You look a lot thinner. And, uh, you know, I've gone through similar transformation. Mine wasn't quite as severe or anything. It was just eating like a pig, eating wrong, eating all carbs, Mm -hmm. you know, not paying any attention to anything I'm supposed to be doing. I've never been a heavy drinker. Uh, Well, never. If you go like from 40 until now, I've never been a heavy drinker. Pre-40, anything went, right? But... uh, but, you know, like I lost 35 pounds as well. And mm-hmm. just how that makes you feel is unbelievable. Like yeah. you just feel like a different human. Those ankles that used to hurt when you woke up don't hurt anymore. Your feet don't yeah. hurt anymore. Your knees don't hurt anymore. You know, it's, it, it's If we could take sugar and seed yeah. oils out of our yeah. diets as a human species, um, we could probably, you know, have the biggest change in in the world you know cancer probably wouldn't even exist so um have you ever heard of a doctor called mark hyman no so functional medicine he's a doctor i follow Mm -hmm. uh pretty religiously like i've been following him for i don't know four or five years and he's one of these life hacker kind of live longer live forever to 150 kind of guys right um, but he's got a new book out that, that I would recommend to anyone, but mm-hmm. you and me, uh, I'm just about completed the book. It just came out a few days ago, but it's called young forever mm-hmm. and, uh, highly, highly recommend it. And it's, it's all about, 
it's not about even necessarily living longer, even though longevity is is the goal for most people, but it's about living healthier longer. Right. You know, it's you don't want like even if your last year is going to be when you're 85, do you want the last 10 years or five years of your life to be total shit where you're bedridden right. or in a wheelchair? Or do you want to be up playing tennis every day and die in your sleep without any problems? You know, that's kind of where, where I want to be. You know, I just yeah. want to skip the cancer, you know, heart disease. I want to skip all that stuff and just die in my sleep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm really into that stuff. I'm, I'm so happy that, uh, that you went through the good parts of that, not the bad part, but um, and you know, the lifestyle change. So many people in our industry, I think we talked about this at LDI, yeah. but yeah. I fear for a lot of people in our industry, you know, sadly. It, yeah, it is. It's, it's, you know, none of us are getting any younger and, uh, it, it catches up with you and you yeah. just, you don't think about it. You think you're invincible. You think everything's fine. And then you go get some blood work done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. hello. But, so uh, we'll when see. you're, when you're cooking meat at home, are you like, Obviously, game is about as as great as you can go. Like you know, wild it game is. because it's not just the meat you're eating; it's what that meat ate. You know, it's uh-huh. it's what those animals ate. So you're the food is basically coming through them to you. Mm-hmm. And if that is garbage and grain and and corn and antibiotics and all of the terrible stuff and and pig shit or whatever else they're eating. Yeah. Um, you know, then that's that's what you're consuming too. You're not getting this beautiful piece of red meat that you saw sitting in the grocery store. But when you get the wild game or grass fed or any of the really high end meats that you're now able to get through some of these sellers, uh, it's totally different. You're eating the wild stuff that they ate. Yep, I I go out of my way to to buy grass fed and grass finished beef. Um, I must say I don't like it as much. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, grain-fed stuff definitely has a flavor profile that you're more used to. Yeah, but uh, but true. yeah, I still I, I still go out of my way. We buy um, as much organic vegetables as we can, and uh, so where do you buy your meat from? Um, there's a couple of different grocery stores around that actually have you know like high-end grocery stores. It's a place called Wegmans yeah. that has it. Um, I can get it at my just my local grocery store, not in steak form, but I can get grass-fed in ground form. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, same down here. I I don't trust yeah. the stuff at Publix and and all of that. Like it says grass-fed, and I don't know. It looks like it's been sitting there for a really long time in that mm-hmm. package or whatever. So I usually try to at least go to Whole Foods. Whole Foods has the stuff behind the counter that looks pretty good. And according to the guys that I talk to there, the butchers, they say it's good. I've tried Butcher Block. Um, I've I've done Butcher Block for a while. And uh, it's a bit. The packages they force you into. Yeah. And it's a bit bit expensive. Uh I tend to do fillets. I don't, I'm not really into the, and you'll hate this because you're a proper meat eater and a proper barbecuer and all that stuff. But I, I don't like all the, the fat in there and the, right. uh, I just like really, really lean cuts of meat. And so I'll do a filet and, and I just want to buy 12 filets. Give me 12 filets. Right. And they don't do that. You got to get bacon and all this other stuff with it. And it's like, I don't want all that shit. Well, you got to get it. Um, you know what I found in Canada? So I have a house up in, in Banff. Actually, Ben uh-huh. came up and visited me for a, uh-huh. a couple of weeks last year. But, um, up there, they've got like, you know, these little trucks that come out to your neighborhood and sell you stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so there's a guy up there. It's called Seafood something or other. I can't remember what it's called. I just have his number in my phone. Um, but he turned me on to these bavette steaks. Have you ever done bavette steaks? No. I've never eaten anything like it. I mean, it's it's just a certain type of... I don't know if it's a marinade or a curing or whatever you mm-hmm. would call it that they do. But I mean, literally, you almost have to hold it together on the grill because the meat just wants to fall apart. Wow. It's so tender. And uh, it, they are unreal. I mean, the only huh. thing is they're kind of small. They're like, they're probably six ounces Little or medallions. something. And uh, they're not medallions. They're like a proper mm-hmm. steak, but it's a tiny one. So sometimes you might want to get two. But I mean, in Canadian dollars, I think I buy... I think I buy 12 for like 140 bucks or something. So they're like around $10 each Canadian, which is mm-hmm. like $7.50, $7 each US. So good. I mean, literally no knife needed. So flavorful. You barely have to cook them. And uh, so, yeah, I've been eating a bunch of those. I'm going to make ground lamb for dinner tonight. Ooh. Now I'm I make a, a ground lamb and cabbage dish with uh, chickpeas and onions. It's pretty good. Chickpeas and onions and ground lamb, and it's curry and cabbage. It's it's not a curry. I use uh, uh, Burberry, which is oh, an okay. Ethiopian spice in it. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I just fun. I really like. It's so funny. You hear people talk about cooking venison, for instance. Yeah, and all these recipes, and oh, you soak it in this, and you do that to get rid of the gamey flavor. It's like that's why I love venison. I yeah. love the gamey flavor. Yeah, um, yeah. So I like strong meats, thing, like though. Lamb and goat and, and any kind of wild game. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So um, I'm guessing the four wall thing this year is not going to be smaller. Uh, no, it's going to be. It, it's every year it's grown. I don't yeah. think there's ever been a year that there were less people. And because last year was the first one since COVID, they that and the fact that four wall keeps growing as well yeah they just knocked it out of the park i mean 700 people i told them i could i could do my best to cook for 600 and at one point wes bailey the ceo of four wall you know stopped by to see how i was doing and i was kind of stressing that i wouldn't pull this off and he was like you know f them if they didn't show up in time and there's no food left that's their problem yeah and uh and i ended up so there was 700 attendees and I had one plate of pork and two plates of ribs left over. And that was it. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So you somehow like, did you plan the, I just winged it, man. I just did. I did what I thought was going to work and it did. That's unreal. That's pretty amazing. There's wow. no, there's no sign. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it a long time, so it's a good calculated guess. Yeah, But I would have had more but, leftovers with eight people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, than you had for 700 people. That's pretty incredible. That's awesome. I wish I had any desire to be in New Jersey in June because I'd love to I'd love to be there. And more than anything, just to watch what you're doing, you know, because uh, I'm not like a huge cooking buff or barbecue buff or mm-hmm. anything, but, you know, I am interested for sure. I'm, uh, I've made a promise to Matt Shimamoto and Harrison Lippman to uh, do something they want to do it this spring at their new shop. Oh, that's so, cool. Huh. There may be, may be an opportunity there. So did you ever think of making your passion your business? Um, yes, about a thousand different times. Yeah. And um, my ex-wife's, one of her brothers, uh, was a restaurateur. And 
a long time ago, he had purchased a restaurant in Cape May, New Jersey, down the, sh down the shore. He asked me if I would be interested in going into business with him. I went to the library because I'm dating the time frame now, but I yeah. went to the library and got every book I could find on owning your own restaurant and came back to him and said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. Um, and then over the years, especially with the barbecue thing, and, and my daughters have always said like, oh, we should go do this. We should do this. And you think about, I could be, you know, I could be providing um, a financial legacy for them if I pulled it all off. I even had, um, he's a very powerful realtor who um, is well known in the Jersey end of our industry because everybody from TMB, back to production arts, four wall, everybody's used this realtor. And he came to me straight up and said, um, you, just name it and, and we'll, we'll finance this and get you set up. And, you know, that stuff runs through your head. But at the end of the day, you know, this is sort of who I am, this business and this industry. And well, it's remarkably a little safer than the restaurant business, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, the restaurant business is one of those places where, you know, what do they say? How do you, how do you make a million dollars in the restaurant business? Start with two million or whatever. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it's just tough. I mean, if you hit, you can hit real big. If, if you don't, it can become a life of hell and misery and yeah. long, long, long days that uh, are pretty thankless. Um, I. I watch diners, drive-ins, and dives religiously on Friday evenings oh, every yeah? single week and have been forever. That's cool. I can't get enough of that show. And you just see all these people and you have so much respect for them. And it, it makes me um, so happy to see people who are successful and happy. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't live my life in a rear view mirror, so yeah. I don't have any regrets for not You know, there's a, it. somebody turned me on to something called uh, Masterclass. Mm -hmm. um, yeah which you get it on like Apple TV. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. so I bought it. It's 200 bucks or something. Mm -hmm. and Aaron Franklin's on there. Yeah. I mean, there. I'm not a cooking show guy, but mm -hmm. there are some really great master classes, including uh, what's the Hell, Hell's Kitchen guy? Gordon Ramsay has a right. really good master class on there that, you know, we've tried a few of his dishes. Like you'll hate this because you're a big meat guy, but we tried it. He does a uh, cauliflower steak. Mm -hmm. That is unreal. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's it doesn't taste like meat. It's not supposed to taste like meat, but it's a it's a piece of cauliflower, like you know, two inches thick sure. and and the whole size of the cauliflower, uh -huh. and just loads of spice and cool stuff on it. But really, really good stuff. And then there's some business stuff. And there's you know, you want to become a playwright. Here's how you do it. You right. Know? Um, but it's pretty cool. I recommend. But. It. By the way, back in the 80s, I was a vegetarian for eight years. Were you really? <laughs> what <laughs> happened? Um, <laughs> what, what, life life uh, experiences, whatever. You, just you know change. what's so funny? I just thought of this right now. Mm -hmm. So your role at Ayrton is what? I'm the designer relationship manager for North America. And so the person before you was who? Chris Lewis. And And what's his favorite steak? <laughs> yeah i would think a cauliflower steak which yeah. by the way i've made and they're quite good yeah somewhere in the world right now chris is browbeating someone over eating chicken wings or something he's uh, he's a great dude and i do he is a um, good dude i do respect his conviction so do i i don't yeah. know if you heard it but i had him on my podcast and uh -huh. i did I we actually spoke about it a little bit and i don't agree with him but i accept 
I love anyone's conviction and passion mm-hmm. towards something, and I respect Correct. that, even though I may yep. not agree with you, you know? And the thing where it gets a little big is, is, you know, like he's got one going right now where he twisted a story around online and said that uh, Dave Grohl was feeding dogs to homeless people. He was mm-hmm. cooking up dog meat and feeding it to homeless people. And it wasn't dog meat, it was right. brisket and... Um, it was a very nice story. He's feeding homeless people, right. hundreds of homeless people, uh, but they turned it into dog to make it much more like he's evil. He's a horrible person killing dogs to feed these homeless people. And uh, I just felt like, what for? <laughs> you know, why yeah. are we doing this? Like, right. why start an argument over something so crazy like this? But again, for him, it's a religion. You know, it's it's what he believes, and I respect that. I'm okay with it. Moving on. Okay. So at the start of this podcast, you had been in the business for about 46 years. It's probably 46 and yeah. a half now because we just spent half a year talking about barbecue. Um, I mean, 46 years, that's a hell of a long it's, time. I'm kind of like the mold in your crawl space. I was there before anybody else got here kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I, I guess uh, I look at myself as like a tweener. So you have like the the original people that founded this business, um, one of which I was fortunate enough to work for, a gentleman by the name of Bill McManus. Yeah, and you know I, I worked for him. I I knew Bob C very very well. I knew Tom Fields very well, yeah. um, and I was not of that generation. I was the next go round. Same as me. Yeah, and, basically the same as me. I think you're yeah. a couple of years older than me, but. We're, we're the same generation. I started yeah. a little later in the business than you did a few years I ago. started really early. In, in 1975, well, to, to go all the way back, in my family, I was born and raised as a kid, little kid in South Jersey. And then um, my family moved to Delaware. So my formative years, like junior high, high school, all that, I grew up in Delaware. And my this best mate at the time, um, played drums. He ended up getting a band with his two older cousins. And so my entire junior high and high school years were spent in the basement rehearsing. And I used to joke and say, I played the couch because I was just always there. So um, that started in 73. So by 75, I built my own homemade lighting rig out of, you know, my console was, you know, wall dimmers and switches and stuff and uh, R40 par cans. But I was smart enough not to use like colored light bulbs. I actually went and bought gel somewhere. I found a place <laughs> where you could go and buy gel. Funny. And uh, but then in 1977, it was August of 77. So it was right before I would have gone into my senior year in high school. I got an opportunity to work for a very popular um, local band that played the club circuit. So I liberated my older brother's birth certificate, went to motor vehicle and got a driver's license with my picture and all his stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And I went to, to school every day and worked at bars every, you know, at night I was making $75 a week. And uh, I did that um, all the way through my senior year of high school. And then we went on tour all up and down the, the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast that following summer. So that was the beginning of getting paid. and. Yeah. And there you go. That's that's interesting. So, I mean, was it just a burning desire that this is what you wanted to do for some reason? Or you just were the one guy that couldn't play an instrument, so they said it, you're the lighting guy? It was, a, it was a combination of things. It started out as my friend wanting me to be the lighting guy because he wanted lighting. 
and it, obviously I was just always there. And I just wasn't taking it seriously, and we're just kind of dabbling and all that. And then I went and saw Rush, mm. and that was that was life changing. Yeah. I mean, jaw dropping, life changing. And I was like, now I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And and ironically, many 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 years later, Howard and I became really good friends. So that yeah. was kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, his I just thought his work was so awesome, and you know, it's just. PRT of ACLs, but man, what he did was amazing. And yeah. grant, granted, Rush's music was built for lights, for sure. Oh hell yeah! And uh, yeah, and it just it just went from there. And and the, the 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 experiences over the next eighteen or nineteen years were incredibly varied. So I heard I something, <clears throat> and I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard you were uh, like employee number one at Mainlight. I was the OG. You were the OG I, uh, at Mainlight. We so me and my buddy started hearing these rumors. There was a sound company in Delaware called Wonder Sound, and we started hearing these rumors that a, a lighting guy had set up shop there. Um, there was a bar band in Baltimore at the time called Vanessa, really super super talented prog rock band. Um, you know, female backup singers, multiple keyboard players, and all that, and. Uh, this guy was their lighting guy. And so he started this lighting company. So I went up and met Itis Gimbatas. And he was sitting in a chair in a little tiny corner of the sound company. And he had five Altman number 65 Fresnels. And that was his lighting company. Uh -huh. And uh, and I just wouldn't leave. And I would just show up every day and hang around. And he didn't have any money to pay me, but he would buy me lunch at Burger King every day because Itis always ate at Burger King every day. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, and it just evolved out of there. And in that was that was late seventy eight, early seventy nine, I think. And in like eighty or so, um, there was a whole big thing between him and the sound company guy, whatever. And and Itis was getting sucked into some places he didn't want to go, so he he got his own building and changed it. It was Wilmington Stage Light That's wild. and changed it to Main Light. So I, I got to tell you a funny Itis story. Uh huh. So, lots. you know, when I first uh, went to work for High End, I didn't know Idis. I didn't know Mainlight. I had never done any business with them. And uh, so Craig Burris takes me to, to meet Idis. And, uh, of course, he doesn't tell me that Idis has Tourette's before he takes me to meet him. And uh, we decide to meet him at his golf course, and we're going to play a round of golf. And I'm a fairly terrible golfer, as it is. Um, but you know, no problem. I'm looking forward to meeting this guy. I've heard a few stories about him already and great guy and good company and everything else. So we're on the first friggin' tee box. And of course they make me go first. And, uh, so I'm standing there doing my little, you know, club waggle thing and getting ready to pull back the driver. And every time I went to go back, he'd go, ah! <laughs> you know, and I mean, I'd stop and didn't say anything. I don't even know the guy, right? So I'd put my club back down, do the little waggle, go to go back. Rah! And finally I turn around and I go, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, are you messing with me or something? And uh, and he's like, no, no, you don't know. I got Tourette's. But he was fucking with me. Like, right. he was just doing this on purpose, thinking I knew he had Tourette's. And, uh, uh, you know, I loved the guy from then on. I, I just... You know, I was like, this guy is my kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I loved that he did that. And, and uh, I've always really enjoyed doing business with Itis. 
he was a, he was an awesome mentor. Um, we were for for a, a long long time. We were best of friends. I was in his wedding party. He was in my wedding oh, wow. party. Wow. Um, and uh, and he would for years. Not only was I the first employee, I was the only employee for for many years. Yeah. And he'd go golf for like three days. I wouldn't see him. I'm like yeah. a twenty year old kid. That's funny. opening the shop and closing the shop every day. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, so you had to be there for those character. really early, like Richard Bellevue high end days and stuff when those two were collaborating all kinds of funny stuff. Yeah. So, God, this is a, a long and, and twisted kind of thing. So, there's this dude that I knew from a band that I used to be involved with called the Dead End Kids. It was a really cool band, but um, drugs did them in. Yeah. And uh, he had created this wand strobe. Um, and ended up through Great American Market, it became the Star Strobe, if you remember that. Barely. The, dif the difference is the Star Strobe was wimpy and um, Gabe's were not. Well, Gabe and I ended up in a bit of a uh, um, business <laughs> arrangement that uh, he owed me some money and he didn't have the money to give it to me. So he ended up giving me a bunch of these unfinished strobes and he wasn't doing anything with them at the time at that point in time it was like a long long gone away thing so we started making them at mainlight we called it the pulse star hmm. and it was it was a random um triggering wand strobe and they were bright as can be and we were doing really well um this was still in the heyday of the disco era and so nightclub disco nightclubs and stuff like that and there was a company in austin texas that did club installations called blackstone audiovisual of course and yeah. they were they were our best customer they were buying 500 a month and on average were 500 in back order and uh yeah so i knew that, you know that's who became high end that's wild and, i did not know that story about the you guys had the original yeah. strobe and then so tell me the next part of it. Like, the, did they just copy it and screw you and stop no, buying not, yours? No, not at or? all. So then we evolved into a digital chaseable one, like a controllable one. Yeah. And uh, it was cool. It looked like a miniaturized, like a par 36 size VL2. It was pretty cool. It was huh. really powerful. I actually, I built um, the very first system into a stage at Tate when I was in my 20s and uh, for a Judas Priest tour. And I, I'm pretty sure that it was Mickey Kerbishley's very first gig as a crew chief. Oh, wow. And uh, so I went up there and I built him into that. I debuted the product in High End's booth at the very first LDI. And at the time, I didn't even think it was called, no, it was in Dallas. I don't think it was called uh, High End at the time. It was Lightwave Research. And the High End thing was kind of coming Wasn't Dallas the second year? I think Dallas I was the Nashville first. was the first year and Dallas was the second year. Cause I went to the Dallas one, but I wasn't right. at the one before that. And maybe it was the one in Nashville. Yeah. It was, but it was the very first one yeah. and they, they had a booth and the product was really, really, really well received. Um, Itis is a lot of what Itis did. He was first generation Lithuanian. So a lot of what he did came out of that Lithuanian community and the engineer that, we were using to work on this was a family friend, Lithuanian guy. And he ha he just had one family crisis after another. And he had, a, he just had to step away. He could no longer work on the project. And then I think financially, you know, the, the loss of that and then probably financially. So, um, yeah, Itis and Bellevue got together and, and he handed it over and it became the data flash. That's um, incredible. 
I didn't you know, know that. they made it much uh, physically much <clears throat> larger and all that, but that's where that's where the genesis of that all came out of. Well, the data flash was such a game changer. I mean, it mm-hmm. changed strobes forever, really. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I never got a chance to see the show, but I remember thinking it was the coolest thing. This, I think, this was the AF one thousand level. You know, is the the next level up. But um, and I don't know who the LD was that did this, but it was uh, White Zombie Tour. Oh yeah, and they were using pre rig lamp bars fitted with six AF one thousands with scrollers on them as big fat washes, and he would just hit it until it would thermal, and then he'd hit some others until they would thermal. Oh wow! And it just sounded like that was really really cool. Huh. But uh, at that LDI, they debuted. Was that who was that? Was that pro. like Laws Upton or something? It might have been Lazer. That's something he, that sounds like something he would do. Yeah. I thought he worked with Zombie back then. I don't remember. It could have been. Yeah. Lazar's a trick. Well, I mean, the, the, to me, the thing that blew me away was Michael Jackson Dangerous with the whole back, wa- yeah. back wall of them. Uh, you know, it was just like, wow, in your face. I don't even yeah. remember how many it was, but it was hundreds of data flash or AF thousands. I had to, I I had to do a video to, uh, for a flying rig for the victory tour, the Jackson oh. five victory tour. Huh. And, uh, Bill McManus had this ground support flying rig and, uh, we, you know, we had set it all up and he was shooting a video using the office receptionist cause she was a cute young lady. And I just kept saying, this is pathetic, man. Cause she looks like a sack of potatoes. Come on. You. And he was like, all right, wise ass. If you can do it better, get in that harness and do it. So I was flying around in this thing. So we sent oh, it to Michael Jackson's people, and it got on the tour. That's really funny. That's a good one. So what are what are some of your like really memorable early gigs? Uh, not just rock and roll gigs, but any kind of gig. Okay, this is really this this goes to the wayback machine, and yeah. this dates dates my age big time. All right. Um, I did a gig at Penn State for a one-hit wonder band called Frankie and the Knockouts. I remember them. What and was the their drummer, song? I can't remember it. I wish I could. I, yeah. I can't remember it. Um, the drummer is Tito from Bon Jovi. Really? And the reason he was the drummer in Frankie and the Knockouts, because there wasn't Bon Jovi yet. It predates all of that. And uh, this will be Bon Jovi's 40th year. This year is his 40th anniversary. So this was before that. That was kind of a cool gig. Um, When I was 23 years old, I was standing on the stage at JF, now long gone, JFK Stadium in front of 90,000 people for the synchronicity tour, like throwing Frisbees and beach balls back out into the house just because it was something to do at the time. Because it's a lot lot of cool gigs. Um, I lit... Uh, a lot of stuff when I worked at McManus for Y World of Sports because that was a, a thing that he really had dialed in at the time. And I lit title fights for Larry Holmes and Marvin Hagler. I lit pool matches for Willie Moscone and Minnesota Fats, which was really cool. So boxing and uh, oh, really? Yeah. Minnesota Fats. Yeah, and I, I stood next to Johnny Lee Hooker while he's drinking a Budweiser out of a brown paper bag. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it's really so cool. A lot, lot of cool different stuff. Fight but lighting I, I, was so different back then, right? It was just yeah, like, it was metal halides. Yeah, it was just, it like, was just metal halides. Now it's a thousand moving lights. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. It's totally different. But hmm. uh, but the the boxing package that that Bill created was um, that was a that was a money making machine. I mean, you know, we were all over the place doing that stuff. 
and uh, yeah, just a lot of lot of cool stuff. A lot of you know fashion shows, corporate gigs, trade shows. Um, Tim Eisen did a whole bunch of stuff for him for Engelbert, and uh, yeah, you did some skating of, stuff too, right? Yeah, the, actually, the last official gig I ever did before I evolved into sales was in 1996, and um, it was for Billy Brennan for NBC's um, broadcast of the World Figure Skating Championship. Oh, cool! And we're sitting there having meetings, and you know, we're going to run like 800 miles of truss and put up thousands of par cans. And I just said, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a newer way to do this, and. Uh, I used 54 cyber lights and nothing else. And oh, I remember, wow. I remember after we talked about it and discussed it before we went into the meeting to pitch this to NBC, he said, if this works, I just want you to know that I'm going to take all the credit. And if it goes wrong, you're going to take all the yeah, blame. And I was like, I was like, I'm in dude, you know, let's, wow. let's go, let's do it. Yeah. And, uh, it worked. It had some holes in it. It, it, it consecutive gigs after that. Cause I had, that was it. That was my last gig. But Randy Mulliken, who's the CEO of Mainlight currently, he, he took that and ran with it. And he pumped up to like 74 units or something like that to fill in some of the holes. But it worked great because for all the bumper stuff, we had all this cool color and gobos. And uh, for the gig itself, it was beautifully lit. Yeah. And it was it was the experience of all the Sportlighter stuff at McManus that gave me the idea because that's what, you know, the Cyberlight was just a huge huge beam of light. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's becoming more and more common for that kind of thing to happen where people are using moving lights as area lighting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it's just, you know, as a temporary, like, you know, racing is, is one of the areas I've seen it done where they're setting up temporary tracks and it's just, it's more flexible and it's easier to do with moving lights than it is to do with right. large, either LEDs or metal halides or whatever they are. Um, so, and I actually think, isn't there one, I think I just read on social media this morning that Ayrton's doing something with the Singapore one. They're lighting up the, because uh, the Singapore Grand Prix is going to mm -hmm. a night race this year and uh, they're lighting it. <clears throat> so that'll be interesting. Speak of the devil. Speak of the devil. So why and when and how was the transition to the dark side from from lighting to lighting sales it was it was staggered because it 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 went operational first and then into sales so in 96 um i just wanted i, I was i just wanted something i wanted a bigger pond to play in i guess i could say and uh so i left mainline and went and opened tmb's east coast shop Oh, um, something that they had wanted to do for a long time. And we had been talking about it for about two years. Um, Colin and Tommy and myself had been discussing it for a couple of years. And so finally it happened. And sometime in the latter part of 96 or during the summer or something. And uh, I mean, I literally, you know, found the building got the phone system, the alarm system, the fork truck, the pallet racking, opened the bank account, you know, you, you name it, every bit of it, and and hired all the people, started a cable shop, and and uh, the rest is history Yeah, it there. sounds like one of those, um, you know, Tommy conversations where it was like, okay, 
Brian, we're going to do this, but you know, you got to deal with everything. You just, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to agree to do it, but you got to do everything. All right. All right. All right. All right. Yeah, let's have a beer. <laughs> um, kind of. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, it was good. And it, it was, uh, it was a great learning experience. Um, while I had, um, a lot of experience dealing with a business because of, of working closely with itis. Yeah. I had never done anything like that on my own before. And, um, so a couple of years into it, Colin realized like, this is, this is silly. Like you're, you're so much more valuable to us, um, with the customers than you are operationally. And, uh, so I evolved into it at that yeah. point. So it was a couple years into it that I evolved into that. Um, it's, I love the people. I love being with people. Yeah. And the, one of the coolest parts about being in this industry is like over 90% of everybody I've ever met in this industry is cool. And, uh, so it just worked out. It, it sort of evolved. So tell me there. who are the 5% who aren't cool? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Give me a small list. Come on. Uh, no, I mean, it's the cool thing about being in sales in this industry, because I've even though I'm a business owner and have been for years, I've always been a sales guy. And really, it's about solving problems. It's not about, Correct. you know, talking people into buying things or fighting over buying things or, you know, sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah, there's some real salesy stuff involved, but usually it's just solving problems. What do you, what do you need to do? And let me help you find a way to do that. Right. And that's, that, uh, that's absolutely what it is. And yeah. It's, it's solving their issue, solving their problem. It's integrity. Cause that's a huge thing for me. When I was doing gigs, I could walk into an arena and point up in the air and say, that's all there because of me. Mm. When you're doing sales, all you have is your integrity. And yeah. if you screw that up, you're done. And, yeah. uh, and, and I, I know people in our industry who, are like that. I know people in our industry who I, I like a lot and they've never done a gig and they're good. They're successful. They're, they're counterparts of mine and competitors and they've never done a gig. Yeah. I happen and, to be one of those people. <laughs> I've never and, done a gig and I've done pretty well in the industry. So. Yeah. And, and, and that's great. But what I, what I can't deal with is, is the few people that, you know, that are just dodgy as hell. And it's like, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, if I tell you I can do something, it's going to happen and I'm not going to let you down. Yeah. And, um, I've over time over this, I'm jumping way ahead now and we can go into that later, maybe, good. but, um, building sales teams and things like that was a whole nother, that was like a whole nother plateau at a whole nother level. And, um, that, that was interesting and different too, but the, while I kind of always liked being the art of the deal guy, I mm -hmm. like trying to, cause that's part of figuring out how to help people is to yeah. figure out how can we make this work? Mm -hmm. Um, but there have been occasions where you quote unquote, talk somebody into something and that usually doesn't work out well. That usually comes back with no, I mean when it doesn't way. feel really good to you like you're selling some shit that you needed to get rid of out of yeah. the warehouse because your boss was yelling at you about it or whatever right. it usually doesn't end really well you know and yeah. and it doesn't feel good while you're doing it and it doesn't feel good after you did it and it comes back to bite you somehow <clears throat> you know that reminds me of selling uh you know being challenged by Peter Johansson to sell mm -hmm. 500 
uh, Martin Pals <clears throat> in 1996 or seven when it came out. And uh, I've regretted everyone I sold since then, you know, right. because they all came back to haunt me. Like there's one particular lighting designer, Mike Ledesma, every time, every time I see him, he's like, hey, remember those pals you made me buy that time for uh, Gloria Stefan? And I'm like, fuck, <laughs> again, Mike, come on. So, <clears throat> so, so the first moving lights I ever used, this is, fun, this is a trip. So I was supposed to use the very first um, IntelliBeams. Yeah. And uh, this is before they even so started to sell them. And at the last minute, I had them booked on this corporate gig in, a, in an actual theater. And Bellevue went to Itis and said, I, I, I can't let you, I know I told you you could have these lights, but you can't have them. They're not ready yet. So they supplied me with 12 Comar Jupiters. Oh boy. That, that thing for, for anybody listening, that doesn't know that that was a moving headlight that was so large it had to come apart in two pieces before it could go in a road case yeah and uh when i turned those things on once they were hung in the theater and they started to home it was so loud i thought people were were diving for cover i mean it was <laughs> it was wild yeah yeah it's funny i had uh i had fausto from comar on the podcast mm -hmm. a few weeks ago and uh fausto's still a very good friend of mine today but He's like one of the OGs, probably the OG of moving light, you know, engineering, developing yeah. moving lights in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, we talked a whole bunch about some of that stuff. Like he was creating lights that were meant to hang in nightclubs, not mm -hmm. lights that were meant to go out on tour. Right. And when they ended up going out on shows and being shipped around for multi-use and all of this stuff, that's when the wheels kind of started coming off on, on some of that stuff. And they had to go, whoa, we need to sort of go back to the engineering table and make some stuff a little more robust. But uh, whereas Bellevue seemed to build it knowing that it was going to go out on shows, it wasn't just yes. going to be in a nightclub. He yeah, he definitely a, built things like a tank. He had a knack. I, you know, I... It's one of the things, like, if I look back with nostalgia at our industry, one of the saddest things is what happened to high end. Uh, you, you know, you and could, I think they're back you could in write kind a of book about like the arc of, yeah, uh, of everything, you know, going from again, you know, who they were and, and, and the, all the different elements that pushed them into becoming a manufacturer. Mm. And, uh, that, that's a story unto itself there. But no, but I, I mean, just, you know, how far they fell and yeah. and i mean they're in a good place again with etc but it's mm -hmm. still like high end is a secondary brand now to etc like they used to be the shit like high end was it and uh yeah it makes me sad because i, <clears throat> I grew I up in the industry my, competing oh, against them at martin mm -hmm. and they were always sure. so much better than us and so much bigger and so much cooler and they had better lights so we always aspired, you know, it was like Hyundai chasing Mercedes or something. Right. And we just, Oh, one day I'm going to be like them, you know? And, uh, so I just always had so much respect and, and admiration for that company. And, uh, yeah, so I hated just seeing where it went. When I was, uh, when I was with GLP, I took one of my younger sales guys out to visit customers. And so we, we went and saw Mokri. And so, you know, Robert's given him the history lesson and he was saying how, you know, this is something that you'll never, that'll never be recreated. You'll never see it again. He said, but it was basically Varolite and 
moving mirrors and that's all there was yeah and uh and morpheus. Oh, morpheus right but um <clears throat> he said so we debuted the the studio color and uh, the studio wash or whatever it was in uh, remedy and he said people would come up to us and say how much is it going to cost and we would say we don't know yet when's it going to be released we don't know yet okay i'll wire you five hundred thousand euros tomorrow yeah, and he's like, that'll never happen again. Well, because there was nothing you could buy. There wasn't. Yeah, and, there was literally all. nothing else yeah. you could buy. So you know, it's what made IntelliBeam mm -hmm. so big, and it's what made Studio Color just go nuts. And uh, yeah, I mean, it. You know, I hate being old, but I like being old enough to have seen the moving light industry from its inception all right. the way through to where we are today. And you know, today. I talked yesterday. I had uh, I actually recorded uh, Eric Todd yesterday. Oh, cool! Um, another Jersey guy. So this is New Jersey week on Geezers of Gear. Uh, but you know, like today, everything is good. That's yeah. the crazy thing. Like I happen to love the brand that you work for, Ayrton. Um, they're also a big supporter of my son's racing career, and uh, but you know, everything is good. Like you can't really land on a manufacturer and just go, this stuff is shit. Like yeah. it doesn't exist anymore. Even like Cameo and, and American DJ and all of those right. things are, are good now. Uh, certainly Ayrton's better. There's, there's products that are still good, better, best, but, it, but the good like is so much better than it used to be. Yeah. You, you could buy back in the day, you could buy a bad television. Yeah. You, you you can't now. Like yeah. the worst TV in the world is 10 million times better than the best TV was 40 years ago. Well, and it still shocks me today. Yeah. And again, I'm, this is an age thing, but yeah. I walk into Costco and I see, you know, 50 inch televisions for 199, yeah. you know, and I'm like, what? A 50 yeah. inch flat screen HD TV for 199 bucks. That's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it blows me away. I just bought, in my house in Canada last year, I bought a new TV. I think it's a 75-inch or 80-inch or something. Mm -hmm. I think I paid like two grand for it, and it's amazing. Yeah. It's the so nice. The technology's incredible. You know? yeah, this, is, this is a cool little place-in-time technology thing about that. So when High End en entered into the lawsuit with Varolite, mm -hmm. um, there was a school in Itis's town that he lived in that um, I guess his kids went to and stuff. So he always uh, would do free gigs for them. Mm. And so one day in the, the cafeteria or whatever you call it, like in the wings, we found this light. It looked like the head of the, the dude from War of the Worlds, the, the thing that comes out of the spaceship. Mm -hmm. And it was... Like we're talking Bardwell McAllister days. As a matter of fact, I think that's who made it was Bardwell McAllister. And it was a little tiny, you know, fixed focus light. And it had three color wheels. Ma mm. They were manual color wheels that you had to spin with your finger. Yeah. And they were, um, you know, dyed glass color wheels. And uh, I guess I just had told Bellevue about it. And I had to go up to the school and get it and send it to Bellevue for uh, the color to, to, well, to say, you know, this is IP, 
this is this pre predates your IP and stuff like that. Oh. Of course, they didn't win, but it was a valiant valiant prior try art. anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Prior art. Yeah, that's, what I was for. that's that's crazy. Yeah, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it again. I'm not happy about being old, but I do really enjoy the fact that uh, like people today, and you know, this is going to sound like a real old guy things to thing to say, it, but guys, it is who, called you know, geezers. These young kids today. You know, I mean, don't realize that people used to program moving lights using faders. Okay, this one's, yeah. you know, for color. This one's for gobos. This one's pan. This one's tilt. Oh, we got 16-bit now. Two for pan, two for tilt. Yeah. You know, fine and coarse. And, uh, I mean, it was just the way you did it, right? Or even before that with the LCD the controllers matrix. and LED controllers, the yeah. uh, high-end controllers. Or the Martin one with the trackball on it. Remember that thing? The yes. 3032 or, or 2032 or whatever it was called. But uh, so going back to TMB, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about your health and, and all of those things. I'm sure that's when your biggest problem started to surface was. Uh, no, it, my biggest problems when I was around 20. <laughs> oh, right. But, um, but yeah, it. it TMB was made for me in yeah. some ways. In some ways, it was the best place I ever worked. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, because it was it was just you know awesome. And Mar Marshall and Colin, um, you know, I'm still really close with. I'm I'm going to the Yucatan fishing with Marshall in, a, oh, in that's about cool. eight weeks or something. That's him cool. and Smoother and myself. And uh, oh yeah, yeah I remember just, you did that last year. Uh -huh. a, and yeah. Chaz went too, didn't he? He did. He's not going this year, but no. he went last year. Uh. Um, but yeah, it was what a fun group. It it was a it was just a. How great can you be there without people. an English accent though? Like, do you have to make one up? Uh, with no. that group, <laughs> no, I'm the outcast out yeah. of that group. Yeah, they bring but, you because uh, you know how to cook. That's it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was it was just a great it was a great place at a great time, and uh, we had a we had a lot of fun. We uh, Tommy and I were were bi-coastal kindred spirits for sure um actually the 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 year before i joined tmb um was the the only year that Mainlight had a their own booth at ldi and that was because of the fiber optic curtain and all that stuff right yeah um itis's nephew was a, an aspiring comic book artist and he created this superhero the Mainlight man and uh it was really cool and it you know, he had an LCD controller for his belt. And, mm -hmm. and I remember know, it so well. The, all the you know, telebeam sticking off his shoulders. And so um, I built it. Um, I had Southwest Scenic in Arizona build a 14-foot tall replica of this with real high-end gear and stuff built oh, into wow. it. And put it on the booth. And uh, the day I was setting him up, you know, because he this is a huge monstrosity. He goes up in pieces. And... People were, you know, busting my balls left and right. You know, when we were setting it up, the union guys were just like, what the, what is this? And um, so I had most of them up. I don't think he had his arms on yet. And we come back the next day for load in. And I can see like, I'm on the other side of the hall and I can see this hubbub going on. Like what, what's going on over there? And then I realize whatever it is, it's our booth. Oh, no. And I get down there and somebody had had built like a three foot long cock out of <laughs> Baffers tape and beer cans and taped it to the statue. 
Oh my god, so that's funny. For a split second, so security the, vi- video I'm sure showed that it was Tommy. Well, so for a split <laughs> second, I I thought it was the union guys because they were giving me a hard time, and then I realized that they wouldn't have had the the um, the balls. energy to do it. <laughs> And so then I immediately just marched over to TMB's booth where Tommy folded like a cheap camera and just ah, fessed up right away. That's so funny. But, so he did it? Yeah. And then oh Jackie Tian was so pissed because there's all these like Japanese people taking pictures and all of it. Oh, no. And so like, I have to go take this thing off and I'm like cleaning all the gaffer's tape smooched <laughs> off the crotch of the statue. That is hilarious. It, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've had some funny Tommy moments. I remember one time... We were supposed to go see a client, and uh, I think I was with Martin at the time, and we were supposed to go see a client, and he goes, I got to stop by my house. You know, let's just run by my house. We'll run by my house. We go to his house, and it's probably two in the afternoon. We ended up at his house till like two in the morning watching Faulty Towers and getting drunk off our asses. Yeah. And, uh, and then I took a taxi to my hotel and we missed the appointments that we were supposed to be at and everything. And I watched every episode of Faulty Towers probably twice. And uh, just a hilarious, hilarious day. I mean, I, a, I think my a, face hurt from laughing. He was an awesome guy. We, we were at LDI probably the first or second year I was at TMB. And uh, there was a, it was at the Peabody. It was in Orlando. Okay. And um, there was some other, you know, corporate type event going on at the same time as LDI. And we're all hanging out at the bar drinking and stuff. And there's these suit and and tie guys. And there's this, this woman who is a good bit older than us and extraordinarily attractive in a business pantsuit. And she was getting, you could tell she was getting lit and she's, going from one table to the other with these guys. And I guess she finally realizes there's these dudes that don't look the same as all the guys she's hanging out with. Yeah. So she, she comes up and actually I do this every time I got to back up. So when we get to Florida, we rented a 15 person passenger van. Why? And cause it's a big group of TMB people and oh. TMB people always Traveling did everything together. Yeah. We traveled in a pack for sure. So Tommy tells the the rental car place, um, I need you to take the back seat and the spare tire out because we needed room to put shit in, like m- mainly beer probably. And they said, no, we're, we're not taking it out. And so Tommy gets in this huge argument with, with Hertz. And he basically tells them he's going to throw the back seat and the spare tire over a fence somewhere. So that's important later in the story, but I always forget to start with that. So, okay, back with the, 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 the lady at the bar. So she comes over and she's hanging with us for a while. And uh, I said something to her rather provocatively <laughs> that I'll leave that little detail out. And she responded in a way that, that just made me go, whoa, I am dealing with somebody serious here. Um, and eventually she goes about her way. Now it's like three in the morning or whatever. The bar closes and we, we decided we didn't have enough alcohol. So a ton of people pile in the van, which we had checked the back seat and the spare tire with the bell caps when we arrived at the hotel. So, <laughs> Why? <laughs> so we could have room for beer and stuff like that oh in the back God. of the van. <clears throat> so, um, so we go over across the street to the 7-Eleven and Jaime Duarte who's still with TMB to this day, and a young lady named Lilia Hubbard, who at the time was Aaron Hubbard's wife, and she was Colin's assistant. So 
they go inside to 7-Eleven to get beer. And there's like a, a bajillion dudes in the back of the van. And I'm in the passenger front passenger seat. Tommy's driving. And he said, man, it's really a shame what she said to you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, she, she blew you off. And I said, no, dude, not at all. Just the opposite. You misunderstood. And I explained it to him. And in typical Tommy fashion, he goes, for fuck's sake, we got to go back. And he throws the van in reverse and just nails the gas pedal to the floor. And the van's not going anywhere. It's just sitting in the parking spot, facing the 7-Eleven. The back wheels are spinning like crazy. Smoke is everywhere. And that's when the cop who was in the parking space next to us put on his lights. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was, it was a whole ordeal. So Tommy has to get out of the van. By now, Lily and Jaime come out, and they're holding like cases and cases of beer in their arms, standing oh, there in no. front of the van. It, it, was quite, it was quite the ordeal. Yeah, have you guys and been drinking at all? No. No. <laughs> yeah. So Tommy has to do, um, again, this kind of dates things, but he's doing the whole walk in the straight line, standing on one foot, poking his you know, finger. Why does that date it? Nose. You don't have to do that stuff anymore? Well, they didn't have breathalyzers back then. I oh, think. oh, I get it. And uh, it was a, it, the process took so long. I remember falling asleep in the van at one point. But um, so it, 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 what started as one cop car ended up five cop cars and a police helicopter with like a sky tracker search light. Oh, on top no. Of at some point, one of the cops, I guess, called the rental car company. And the rental car company said, is the back seat and the spare tire in the van? And so he asked Tommy that, and Tommy's like, well, you're gonna have to take a look, but can my friends get out first? And the cop's like, you know, like the record player needle just got yanked off. He's mm. like, excuse me, friends? The cop had never bothered to look in the van. So it was, I mean, we had people from Australia, people from the UK, oh, and no. it, it was like the, the clown car at the, the circus. Like people just started pouring out of the van, the, the, the cops, it was a very embarrassing moment for the cop. But anyway, so then he radioed back to the rental car company that, in fact, that stuff was missing in the van. And that's, I think that's when the helicopter showed up. Oh, and uh, somehow, miraculously, Tommy evaded getting arrested. During all this, um, Lilia panicked and went back to the Peabody, woke Marshall up, who walked across International Drive in his bare feet, walked up to the cop, said, what's going on? The cop explained what's going on. And Marshall said, take him away. <laughs> Turned around and went back. No way. <laughs> but but Thanks, we, managed Marshall. To, we managed to get away from it all. And uh, they towed the van. So we didn't have a van for the rest of the show. And uh, by now, of course, like half the Peabody LDI-wise has emptied out and is watching this spectacle because of the helicopter and oh stuff. It was pretty God. wild. It was, a, it was a fantastic Tommy story. I don't know how I ever missed that story. That's a good one. Was, I like it. Yeah, it was definitely uh, discussed a lot in the days that follow. <laughs> That's wild. But, yeah, one, one time, uh, do you know Chris Asen? Yeah. I was with Chris Asen in, uh, at Rimini. Was it the Remini show? Yeah, it must have been the Remini show because we were at, you know, uh, Malpensa uh -huh. Airport just outside yep. of the Milan Airport. Yep. So, you know, for those who don't know Malpensa, there, there's a, the Malpensa, Villa Malpensa. That's what it's called. The hotel there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever stayed there. The one right at the airport. Right. And it's the only place you can stay. Otherwise, you have to stay, you know, downtown Milan and it's like a 40 minute ride or whatever right. to your flight in the morning. So we were at the hotel and we were like, I'm hungry. And we go in and the restaurants, 
not closed, but there's only like us and two other tables. And, and, uh, one of the tables is like a foreign couple and the other table, we didn't know who it was. He had his back to us, I think. And so we sit down and we order a bowl of pasta or something. And Tommy comes over and smacks me on the head and goes, Hey fucker. You know? And, and, uh, I'm like, Oh my God, how can we come into a place with two other people and you're one of them? And so he starts, you know, first we were having some wine or whatever and just having a good old time. And he starts telling us this story about like a stripper in Thailand at some place in Thailand. And I won't go into detail cause it gets pretty gory, but he, he's telling this story and he tells what the stripper did and he's not being quiet. You know, Tommy doesn't have much of a, or didn't have much of an indoor voice. And so a little while later, this, this couple goes to leave the restaurant and they walk up and the lady says, by the way, I don't believe that stripper story. <laughs> and you know, they're American, like what are the chances, right? right? In at Milan Malpensa airport, the one other table, all the people in there at the time were American. And, uh, he was so embarrassed cause he was very, very graphic on his, uh, explanations of what this stripper was doing. But uh, yeah, I miss that guy, man. I, I think our industry got a whole lot more vanilla. It did when when Tommy left. Large and loud. That was yeah. his nickname. By the way, speaking of the unfortunate, untimely passing of people, while we were on this call, somebody texted me and told me Bob Roach died. I don't know if you know oh, Bob Roach. Oh, no. yeah. But uh, yeah, I've been doing business with Bob Roach in Orlando for thirty years, really. Uh, oh, that's a shame. Worked for Sesco forever. And right. uh, yeah, yeah. somebody just that's sent awful. me that message on Slack while we were on the call. So It is happening too much these days. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently you had cancer, but uh, yeah. No, it's happening way too much. I mean, mm. you know, Leonard Skinner's over. Uh, it's, well, apparently uh, they're still going to tour, I just read. Wow. Which is weird. No, no original members. No original left. Me- Gary was it. Yeah, I didn't know that until this morning. Ben told me that this morning. Oh, I yeah. I, somehow that I, I listened to too much political stuff and I missed that one completely. Mm. Um, I think uh, Creech posted it somewhere, mm-hmm. and and uh, so yeah, that's how that's how I knew because Creech has worked with them for a long time. I think mm-hmm. so. I remember uh, one time I was with Bob Looney. Or was it Robert Roth? I don't even remember, but um, they were here in Palm Beach doing uh, doing Leonard Skinner, and I ended up mm-hmm. going out with them and hanging out with all these guys and stuff. And I can't remember exactly what happened, but um, Leon, the bass player, was missing, and so he just he they did a show the night before, I think, in Jacksonville or something. And he said, "Hey guys, I'm going to go hang out with these folks at this local party or whatever." He went to some biker party. And just disappeared. Nobody saw him since. So, you know, it's, it's sound check is at three o'clock or whatever. It's two 30 in the afternoon. And all of a sudden you see Leon walking up bare feet, same clothes he was wearing last night for the gig. And, uh, he's like, I'm here for sound check guys. (laughs) (laughs) Just walking up. Nobody knows how he got there. He had no shoes on his feet. And, uh, 
Yeah. So my girlfriend was saying to me today, oh my God, why, why are people dying at 70 and 71 in, in, you know, the music industry? And I said, you don't have any idea how we we live. It's because of what we did in 70 and 71. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time in this business, you know, people, uh, people put themselves through massive pain. And then some of us like me and you apparently, Mm -hmm. uh, catch it early enough to sort of reverse some of the damage. I did, I did find out that you, the only organ in your body that can repair itself is your liver. And it can't repair itself uh, like completely, but it has the only ability to, to regenerate to a degree if you yeah. treat it right. Well, I think, can't they like cut away half your liver and it grows back? I don't know. Like I thought that, yeah, liver actually mm-hmm. is an organ that can grow back. And, right. uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, again, following all these doctors and stuff that I follow now, longevity doctors mm-hmm. and functional medicine doctors, you can reverse a lot of things, you know, diabetes and heart disease and all kinds yeah. of things you can reverse. You can reverse aging. I, aging is a I disease. I had to get new glasses because of that, because really? my eyes got better. Yeah. That's incredible. I was, I was actually, I was in a, in a tree bow hunting this past fall. And uh, a deer walked out and I, I drew back on it and all I could see was a brown blob and huh. I had to let down. I'm not Hopefully gonna, it was a I'm, deer and not like a frigging game <laughs> officer or something, but, you know. But I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take a sh- like a bad shot, but, it, you know, looking through my peep sight, I had no ability to focus on the animal. So I, yeah. the next day I go get my eyes checked and uh, she said, your eyes, the reason you're having trouble is your eyes have improved. So your glasses are causing you a problem. Hmm. And uh, that's wacky. She's like, is there anything different? And I explained what was going on. And she said, well, that's it. She said, just like people lose their vision with diabetes, eventually, she said, if you significantly correct um, it goes the other way. where your glucose level are, your eyes can get better. Hmm. So. so do you wear like a glucose monitor now or anything? I just took it off yesterday after three months. I had... Um, I've been wearing them for, for three months. Oh, okay. Um, like the levels one or something? It was, it, it's actually a company called Nutrisense. Okay. And it's a, it's a Libre. Okay. Um, but I, I just did it out of pocket for three months just to see. And, uh, I've always wanted to try one just to figure out what does and doesn't spike glucose on me. Like right. I've never had problems with being diabetic or pre-diabetic yeah. or anything, but typical of guys our age. Anything sugar and anything made of grains. Yeah, but I mean, typically of guys guys of our age are are like insulin resistant to some extent, right? Correct. And because it's just an aging thing, it happens. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I've always just thought, you know, because some people apparently get glucose spikes from an apple. Some people don't. Some people get glucose spikes from this and other people don't. And so, yeah, I've always thought about putting one on just to see, but they're all so friggin' expensive. I probably won't. Yeah, this was like 250 bucks a month for three months. Yeah, that's and, not hideous. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a good experience. Yeah. So your, your Ayrton gig seems to be a great, like, full circle kind of fit for you. It, it's fascinating. When, when the opportunity came about, which I have to thank Ben Saltzman for because he's the one that brought the opportunity to me. Which is pretty cool, um, considering you guys had a bit of a divorce and then... We did, yeah, but, but it's all good. Like yeah, I said, he's, really he's cool. one of my closest friends. Um, I think something I had said to you in, in some previous exchanges. I have a bit of a, I have a bit of itchy feet sometimes, and so yeah. um, the 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 late Marnie Nerudin 
used to bust my balls and say, I've had one job for 25 years. You've had 25 jobs in 25 years, <laughs> which is not correct, but it was yeah. funny anyway. No, but um, I, I can understand. I mean, sometimes it's not even that you're disloyal or any of those mm -hmm. things. It's just my job's done here. You know, yeah. what, what can I do next? You know, correct. And that that's happened to me. Like, you know, I went from Martin where I worked my ass off, made X amount of dollars, you know, it, it was a thankless thing where I just right. worked so hard, traveled like a lunatic, made so little money to high end where I made this much money. Right. I had no real function. I had the wackiest title. I can't even remember what it was. VP of something or other that meant nothing. I actually asked Lowell Fowler, so what do I do? You know, if I take this job, what am I going to do? And he goes, well, apparently there's some people that don't like us too much. And, you know, just talk to them. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's a job? Like, really? <laughs> that's what you want me to do? And so, I mean, I did that for a little while. I, I played golf. I, I hung out. I mm -hmm. was bored to tears. And finally, I went to Griff, who was the VP of sales at the time, and I said, put me in coach, <laughs> you know, I'm bored. I can't right. just keep doing this, you know? And so I did sales for a little while for them. And again, I, it was just like, yeah, I can't, this isn't satisfying to me. And I feel like I'm collecting too big of a paycheck from you to be unsatisfied for me. And I don't think I'm bringing you enough value. So it's time to go. Yeah. And uh, really that was it. But anyways, sorry. Yeah. So that, oh no, it's okay. So, um, <laughs> When this opportunity came around, people are like, man, that's like the perfect gig. And in a way it is because I can harness um, the amount of years I've been in this business because eventually you just end up knowing a lot of people um, and sort of apply my background and all, the, all that I've learned and all that the people that I've learned from. But in some ways it's the hardest job I've ever had because when you're used to being the art of the deal guy, you walk away with that PO in your hand. And um, this is a much more, I don't know, fluid kind of a situation where my job is to, to work with the designers, drive the specifications, help them achieve their vision, and, and that whole goodwill thing like you were talking about. Designers are like herding cats. Even, even people that I'm really, really good friends with, they just it's not like a rental shop owner who you could always talk to. They're yeah. busy. They don't want to be bothered. And um, so it's, it has its challenges, but it, it is, um, it's a good time and place for sure. Well, the other challenging thing is you're no longer brand agnostic. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're tied to one brand and Ayrton's an amazing brand and you're fortunate yeah. to be tied to an incredible brand, but you're still tied to one brand. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like you're not allowed to be friends with those guys on the other side over there. You know, those guys at the Roby booth. I don't, did I well, see the, you talking to Craig Burroughs? What were you guys talking about? You know, the, the best part of this industry though, is that for the most part, I am friends with almost every right. competitor I can think of. And, uh, you know, Craig and I go back 40 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Marty Postma was one of the first people I ever brought to Clay Packy when he was, Allison Chain's designer. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. So you, your territory is what, the U.S. or North America? It, or? Yeah, my title is North America, but in, in all reality, it's 
it's the states because um, there's the majority of any kind of high level design stuff in Canada comes out of Montreal and that's Quebecois. So um, Fabian, who is my counterpart in France, um, handles much has, of Canada. He, he handles a lot of that. Yeah. And then you got AJ Penn. Where's he? He's in Toronto. He's, right? in, he's in your side, I think. He's, no, he's Western. In, uh, well, actually, isn't he in the US now? He's in Portland or something. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, he's in but, the, but I, but I, saw I, mean, him I at think a festival, he's from so. Toronto, if I remember correctly. Okay. But um, he spends most of his time in, in Portland, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. No, that's that's cool. I mean, I'm I'm happy for you. I think you're a great fit. Uh, again, nothing against Chris Lowe's. I I think Chris Lowe's is a great guy. He's a really good designer. Not positive he had exactly like you got to have a certain thing to be in your role, and there's a certain hardness to it. And yeah. um, you need to want the crumbs on your side of the table. Sort of. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a good way to say it. You know, it's it's uh, it's definitely a challenging gig. It can be a really really challenging gig, and but it can certainly be very very rewarding when you're standing in front of house next to the designer, going ah, you know, that's exactly yeah. how I thought you were going to make my stuff look. You and know? and it is, you know, it's great people, great company. Yeah. Um, you know, Avon is just an amazing individual. And, he really know, Fronte is. Fronte and Altals. And Altals and I have known each other since, you know, back at the MA days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's all very good. And, and Chris, Jared Garza, is who is guy. the uh, the North American account manager, um, I knew him when he worked at Gemini way, way, way back. Yeah. So there's a lot of interconnectivity. So there. So Jared's cool. the North American account manager. What's that? Yeah, like mean? he handles he handles ACT, but he he also deals with Mexico and and all of the Americas actually, oh, not okay. North America, um, South America, everything like that. He he handles all the distributors. So he's like the regional sales manager for the manufacturer, Cor- basically. Correct. I don't do I don't deal with any um, exchange of paper. Like I don't I don't quote anybody. I don't get POs. Um, what a great gig. Years you don't have ago, a sales target. No. Years ago, my daughter said, Dad, what, what exactly is it that you do now? And I said, I get paid to take people to dinner. I was just being sarcastic at the time, but there's it an element kinda of that to it. It is kind of a big part of the gig, you know? Uh-huh. It's really just doing what you love to do, which is having really great relationships with the people out there. Yeah. You know, I, I heard a quote, and I think you probably told it to me, but um, somebody said, that your hobby is having hobbies. Yeah, that was Ryan Hendinger at ACT. Is that and true? That was, yeah, because I got too many hobbies. Um, like what? Hunting, fishing, fly tying, cooking. So the fly tying um, Guitar. Thing. So mm-hmm. um, I have a house up in Canada that we already talked about, and my house is in a place called Canmore. I tell people Banff because most people have heard of Banff, but nobody's ever heard of Canmore. Canmore is a little town before you get to Banff. The reason I have a house there is because Banff is in a national park. You can't own land there. Uh, and you can only buy a house there if you work there. So you have to physically live there and work in Banff. They don't want foreign owners, basically. Whereas in Canmore, they don't give a shit. They sell me a house. They'll sell anybody a house, right? But um, my neighbor in Canmore is... And you might, you're a football guy, right? Mm-hmm. You know who Gary Anderson is? No. 
Gary Anderson, I believe to this day, still has the record for the most points ever gained in the NFL. He was a kicker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he, I think he played for, I know Minnesota for a long time, I think Atlanta. But Gary Anderson's my neighbor and he's a fly fishing guide. Uh, He's got a guide business that he brings in rich guys from all over the place and takes them fly fishing and stuff. But where I'm at apparently is a pretty big fly fishing Mm -hmm. place up there. Uh, the the Bow River going through Western Canada. It's a beautiful part of the world for sure. You should come on up sometime and go fishing. I, absolutely. So what else? Fishing, hunting? Fishing, hunting. Cooking, um, barbecue. I build, I build my own arrows. I tie my own flies. Jesus, um, who's got time for that I ha- stuff? I had my own hobby fly tying business for a while and built an e-commerce website back in the in like 2000. I had no idea what I was doing. Huh. And, uh, and it worked. Now you could have um, probably sold it for a billion dollars. I know. And, and instead I just stopped. <laughs> Everything's a billion dollars on the internet. In two, right, it is. In 2002, um, the, ma- the main fly fishing magazine publications called uh, Fly Fisherman Magazine, and they awarded me the best um, fly of the year for the saltwater category. And, uh, oh, wow. and that kind of killed my business because I'm working at TMB. I'm raising girls who at the time were, were little kids, um, traveling all the time. And, uh, it, I couldn't keep up with it. So I stopped doing it. I still tie all the time for myself. Yeah. Um, but I stopped selling them. Huh. I've given flies to, to Alan Branton before and, uh, people in our industry, like, um, Roger Waters is a big fly fisherman. Eric Clapton's a big fly fisherman. Huh. There's, there's some people out there, but Colin and Marshall are the ones that got me into the fly fishing end of things. Really? And I just started tying and all of a sudden discovered I had this weird knack for it that I I just got really, really good really fast. And I used to tie it at fly tying shows all up and down the East Coast. I've got um, lots of articles uh, you know, published. I used to get paid by magazines to write articles about myself. I'm like, yeah, that's a gig I could do. No shit. Um, so that was pretty cool. That's very cool. I thought I thought uh, Colin and Marshall were both like like big game fishermen, like offshore fishermen. No, it's it's saltwater fly fishing, and that's my huh. passion as well. Like I do the trout thing, and I fish for bass and stuff like that with a fly rod. But it's it's the flats. You're fishing for tarpon, permit, bonefish, yeah, snook. You know these these fish that inhabit very shallow clear water in beautiful parts of the world i can't do it as much as i would like because it's expensive um but it's you know i've I've fished in the bahamas in mexico i fished in canada i fished in california all over different states in the united states um it's it's a huge fabric well, and you used to be able to buy a place in the keys for pretty cheap but not so much anymore not so much anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah you, I couldn't, was buy a, you Nick, couldn't buy a place in Homestead cheap. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, Nick Freed had a uh, place in the Keys in, in Isla Morada. In Isla Morada. I fished with him down there before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I know what he paid for it. And I think he made almost a million dollars selling the place, like, yeah. you know, whatever, 10 years later, less than 10 years later, maybe. And, uh, yeah, it's just gone crazy down there. I've always talked about buying a place in the Keys. I actually did at one point. Like, I signed a contract. I paid a deposit. And then I backed out of it because I couldn't even get down there to meet, like, somebody to do an inspection. And Mm -hmm. 
I hadn't even seen the place yet and I didn't have time to go see it. And I was like, you know what? This is a sign. If I can't make the time to go meet the inspector, I probably can't make the time to use it. So, right. and now I kick myself because I would have accidentally made a million dollars. Right. But uh, I never would have sold it. If I ever bought a place in the Keys, I can't imagine getting out of there. But Nick's place was cool. Yeah. I went, I went down there one time and, and fished with the three amigos. We went offshore for black fin tuna and dorado oh, and i uh, had a really good time they're great yeah, dudes. i think noel still has a place down there he sold his one place whether he's he rebought again or not i don't know. yeah i don't know i don't know i know gary's in like a condo in fort lauderdale or something right. nick went up to uh port st richie port richie okay. port richie i port don't richie. remember port richie sounds, i think that sounds called. right i get it confused with port st lucie Port Ritchie, I think it's called, or Newport Ritchie. Newport Ritchie, that's it. Yeah, it's north of Tampa on that coast, on the left coast. But uh, he says it's great fishing, and lots of musicians live up there, and he got a big place with lots of land, and he's pretty happy. So I usually do this with designers, mm-hmm. and you're more of a designer relations guy, but I like to do this go-to gear section where uh, you're you're top five go-to pieces of gear that you got to put on a show. So no matter what show you're going to do, what's, what are the top five things in your toolbox? And they can't all be Ayrton. All right. I'd have to say the domino long throw just okay. to give, give props to, to, it to is Ayrton a pretty cool that. fixture. That is an awesome, awesome yeah. light. By the way, just to change yes. subjects here again, uh-huh. but, um, you know, I kind of chuckled when I saw the wash light coming out, the domino wash light. And I know that uh, that's a Chris thing. Chris is a big fan of wash lights, and he thinks there's a huge spot still in the world for wash lights. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I've seen some of the images of stuff they're doing with that wash light. Like there was a demo video of where mm-hmm. they lit that big building in Europe. Building. Yeah. I was blown away. That thing is just like a beast. There, there is a there's a spec out right now in the United States for a significant amount of them. Huh. So we'll see where that goes. It's cool. a, it, it it really is a very nice light. It's beautiful. Um, everything everything is so well done there. So anyway, that would be domino long throw. That, that would be domino long throw would be good. Um, obviously, an MA desk. Yeah. Um, would be one. And, in two uh, mode or three mode? Oh, three <laughs> mode all the way. Yeah. I, by the by the way, this is coming from somebody who cannot program. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so like it makes a real um, difference to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, a good hazer, and uh, I'd have to give a shout out to an ACLs. To, to ACLs. I still think that's like an awesome. That's I an love awesome, ACLs. Awesome look. Yeah, I and, love ACLs. Uh, so I got one more, huh? I'm trying. I'm, try- I'm trying to. Uh, well, you have a hard edge and you have an ACL. You're going to need some sort of an LED wash or a something or other. You need a wash light, son. Yeah, I know. I do. Right I now, do. you got a hazer, a spot, and an ACL. It's a pretty shitty show. All right. All right. Then the Zonda 9 effects. Just there to, you go. To keep it in the family. How, how are those things doing? Because I think it's an they're, incredible looking fixture, but... They're doing well. We had some, we had some slowdowns in shipping. Yeah. Um, which kind of stalled things for a little bit. The three's out now, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, is the and, three outselling uh, the nine or the nine outselling no, the three? Yeah. No, the nine is still the, the, 
the one that's selling the most of. But it's, uh, yeah, it's doing well. There was just some some uh, corporate gig for Delta Airlines that had like 136 of them on there. Oh, cool. We're going to have 200 and some on our booth at ProLite. Damn. Because our booth's not that big. There's like 100 Cobras and, and a couple of hundred Wow. Zondas. Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I loved how it was shown at LDI, like that, uh, is it called liquid effect? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is, you know, I think everybody's got their different version of eye candy, what eye candy should look like. But to me, that was super cool. Just a really, really cool look. It, it is It is not as as one high profile person put it in a demo is doing. They said, this is not a gag. No. And, no, it's uh, something that you'd actually use not just yeah. once either. Yeah, it's it's definitely very very cool. Yeah, oh, I like it. Did I miss anything, Brian? I don't know. We've been an hour and a half. I'm sure you probably have lights um, to go get specked. No, it's just the whole well, the act component. We can't like we can't not, not talk not about, talk about, about Ben and how amazing. Yeah, we didn't talk he about act. And, yeah. Um, so after the whole TMB thing kind of ran its course for me, which was 10 years, I opened Act East Coast in 2006, just like I did for TMB in 1996. Yeah. Um, ben joined about a year later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was a great ride. That was a really good ride. I got, to, uh, I got to really step into a leadership role. I ended up being the VP of sales and marketing and I built a sales team from scratch that didn't exist. Mm. It was just Bob, it was just Bob and me really at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a great, great experience. Yeah. And, uh, after the investors, um, when Ben bought Bob out a couple years later, it was, again, it was just time for me to do something different. Yeah. And I was the sales director for the U S GLP for, for two years until COVID put an end to that. Yeah. And, uh, again, more barbecue happening there. Yeah. And, uh, no, but I, you know what, the cool good. thing is you've, you've done a great job. You've built a, a unbelievable network, probably an enviable network from, you know, in our industry. And that means you're never unemployed, you know, uh, you know, God forbid I were ever to lose my company or anything, I would never be unemployed. I just right. know way too many people and uh, I'm effective like you are. And uh, so that's a that's a great trait. Like I, you know, my son's 18 years old and he's a racing driver and, and I try to teach him to make time for every single person that he meets when he's at the track, whether it's a mechanic or it's the guy putting the tires on your car or it's... You know, the guy rolling tires down the thing to take them to the garbage. I don't care who the person is, you know, treat the janitor the same way you treat the team owner and you're going to get pretty far in life. And, uh, you know, you're only as good as your network. Right. And your network is going to keep you employed forever. Unfortunately, you're not going to get to retire anytime soon. (laughs) I'm I'm not interested in retiring right now. It's all good. Well, I want to invite you to Florida to come and barbecue for me, but I don't know 700 <laughs> people, so I can't. Uh, I'm going to have to find a reason to drag you out of retirement again and uh, and make you cook, but I can't figure out what that is right now. Maybe in Canada. Maybe yeah. we'll do something cool in Canada. There you go. Yeah. And it'll be a small group, not 700, maybe which 10. Is, is, yeah, which is much better. I like that too. 
All right, Brian. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it very much. Thank uh, you for the opportunity, man. It was good fun. luck with your uh, good luck with your four wall thing. I wish I could be there, but I'll actually be up in Canada. I leave in May this year, so it'll be pretty epic. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. I can't wait to see pictures and stuff. That'll be cool. All right, my friend. Have a good All right. one. All right. Take care of myself. I'll chat Thanks. with you later, buddy. All right. See Bye. ya. Sweet, sweet thing